I thought I'd look for a few minutes tonight at a subject which is um, a dear one to my heart. It's a favourite subject for which I'm uh, very prepared to get up at uh, six o'clock in the morning and speak to you about, and that is finding Jesus Christ everywhere in the scriptures. Um, and I'd like you to come, if you will, to Hebrews chapter one, just by way of introduction, because when we when we come to the very first words of the apostle who wrote the book to the Hebrews, he's going to say these very well-known words in Hebrews chapter one and verses one and two. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us in his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And we know that literally that phrase means by whom also he framed the ages. So when we consider the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, really we're considering the work of God and how everything is hung across the work of Christ. So when we think about creation or we think about all the stories in the scriptures, it's all about Jesus Christ. And this idea is really a, uh, an eye-opening idea when we come to the scriptures and we look for Jesus Christ. Because he says to us, doesn't he, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. And what we're going to find this evening just by way of a few examples, is that really when we seek Jesus Christ, he is everywhere because it really is all about him. Everything, including the natural creation, is all about him. The ages are framed by his son. So I'd like you to come to Luke chapter 24, where after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's going to be talking to the disciples. And look what he's going to say to them after he's been raised from the dead about these things. This is the road to Emmaus. We know this story pretty well. Luke chapter 24 and verse 25. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And wouldn't we just love to be there with those disciples on the road to Emmaus and have the scriptures open to us by our Lord and Master for him to say, look, there I am. That's me. That's a parable about my work. It's it was going to be an enlightening time for them. And, and sometimes we are foolish and slow of heart to understand the things that are in the scriptures that all really point to Christ. And it says in verse 26, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And it's almost like Christ is saying, you should have read about me, my work, my, my labors, everything that was prophesied about me is already foretold in the scriptures. Oh, not maybe explicitly, 
the name Jesus Christ is never going to be there explicitly, but the parables, the types, the shadows, the way in which the stories speak of Christ is all abundantly clear when we can look back in hindsight. And actually that word or phrase, ought not Christ to have suffered these things, is actually a key word in Luke chapter 24. And if you've got a coloring in pencil, it's there in verse 7. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. It's there in verse 26. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? It's there in verse 44. That all things must be fulfilled. And then again, it's there in verse 46. Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer. So Christ is saying that all of these things ought to be, it must be, it behoves him to have suffered in this way because the scriptures speak abundantly from Moses and all the prophets about these things. So that's really what we want to look at tonight, uh, the way in which when we seek for Christ, particularly in the Old Testament, but also as we'll see tonight in the New, he is to be found everywhere. Not just really the work of Christ, but specifically, as we read here in Luke chapter 24, the suffering of Christ. And really the picture of the crucifixion with the cross of Christ in the middle, flanked by the two thieves, one on the one side and the other on the other, is going to be the, the cameo or the snapshot, the photograph, if you will, the watermark of the sufferings of Christ, which is going to be seen right through the scriptures. When we look for Christ, we're going to see a picture of Golgotha everywhere we look. And that's really what we want to look at tonight together. Now, there's a few obvious examples that we could probably mention right off, off the bat. So um, perhaps uh, the story of the Passover and Israel walking through the middle of the Red Sea with the water on one side and the water on the other side, walls of water and the nation passing through, baptized under the cloud and under the water. That was really going to be a wonderful type, uh, a shadow of the sacrifice of Christ. Or, or what about David and Goliath? David goes down into the valley of the shadow of death. He fights with the great giant of sin. He disarms him with his own weapon and defeats the giant with the sword of death himself. So we're going to see types of these things right through the scriptures. But tonight I want to take you to three kind of more obvious references to the sufferings of Christ. And then maybe three less obvious ones as we kind of expand our minds to think about the way in which this is everywhere in the scriptures. So first of all, three obvious references, and then three less obvious, obvious ones tonight. So I'd like us to begin this little kind of journey through the scriptures in, in Exodus and chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. Now, in Exodus chapter 17, we have the story of um, the fight at Rephidim. We know this story pretty well, but let's just cast our eyes over verses uh, 8 to 16. 
Then came, came Amalek and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose out men and fight with Amalek. And Joshua did as he was told. And they went to the top of the hill, Moses, Aaron, and Hur. And it came to pass as Moses held his hands out that Joshua prevailed against Amalek. And as his hands fell down, the two men on either side held his hands up until, until Joshua prevailed. And you can see as we perhaps read this story now with uh, our eyes beginning to, uh, to be opened as to the way in which the crucifixion is this little watermark of the work of Christ. Now we can see that this uh, is here in this story. And in all of the stories that we're going to uh, look at tonight, the watermark or the, the little clue, if you will, that this is a story about the, the sacrifice and crucifixion of Christ is this little phrase that we're going to see in verse 12. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other. Now, you know where that language comes from because that is the language of the crucifixion. There was a thief on one side and a thief on the other, one on the right hand and the other on the left. So as we read Exodus chapter 17, we're being asked to see the picture of the crucifixion. There's Moses, he's enacting Jesus Christ on the top of the hill. Did you notice, uh, as we quickly read through there, it says in verse 9, on the top of the hill. Verse 10, they went up to the top of the hill. This is a man who is lifted up uh, on top of a hill in full view of everybody else. And there's men on either side, verse 12. His arms are outstretched. This is a picture of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, a picture of the battle against sin. And it involves death, death of the enemy. And did you notice in, in verse 12, it says, his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. His hands were fixed in place. And as his hands were fixed in place, outstretched, if you will, and the rod, which used to be the serpent, as it was cast down in front of Pharaoh, as that serpent was lifted up in the, in the, the uh, rod evidenced by Moses, Joshua prevailed. As the serpent was lifted up, High upon the hill, Joshua or Jesus Christ prevailed. As the serpent or the rod dropped to the heels of Moses, in the words of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, then the Amalekites prevailed. So you can see that this is a marvelous type of the sacrifice of Christ. It's all woven into the story, isn't it? In an amazing way. And look what happens in verse 14. Yahweh said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book, here's the battle against sin, the picture of Jesus Christ, one man on one side, one man on the other, a picture of Christ on the cross with the two thieves, and afterwards there's a memorial that's set forward so that people can remember this great battle, death to the flesh, death to the thinking of the serpent. It's lifted up and sacrificed by Moses and Aaron and her in this story. What a wonderful picture and cameo of the work of Jesus Christ hidden in the story of Exodus chapter 17. 
Well, hopefully you're getting your minds warmed up and your eyes are starting to open. So let's go to our second obvious example. And I'd like you to come to Joshua and chapter 16. Joshua chapter 16 and, or Judges chapter 16, I should say, and the, the story of Samson and the death of Samson. And in Judges chapter 16, we have the end of Samson's life. He's going to really offer himself to his heavenly father as he brings down the house upon the Philistines in one great act of faith. And look what it says in verse 28. Samson called unto Yahweh and said, O Lord God, remember me and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be avenged of the Philistines for one of my two eyes, as it should be. And Samson laid hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood and on which it was borne up. And here's our little phrase that gives us the clue that this is a, a story, a cameo of the, of the crucifixion, of the one with his right hand and of the other with his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with might. The house fell upon the lords and all that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in all his life. And his brethren and all the house of his father came down and took him and brought him up and buried him where he was born between Zorah and Eshtiol in the burying place of Manoah, his father. So here we have another picture of the crucifixion of Christ. We've got a man in between two pillars, the one on the one side and the other on the left. This was a, a story, a sacrifice, which was going to require his death. And yet we're told in verse 30 that he accomplished more in his death than he ever did in his life. And you think about how applicable that is to our Lord Jesus Christ. As many people as he healed and cured and saved and helped and comforted in his life pales into insignificance with the number of people that he has helped and redeemed in his death. And look what Samson did. You know, I used to think when I was young that, you know, he, he, he bunched his enormous muscles together and with one tremendous push, he was, he was able to, with superhuman effort and super manly strength, he was able to like push the pillars apart. But it doesn't say that at all, does it? Actually, he brings the house down on the Philistines by yielding to the might of God. It's almost like he had his arms around the pillars and he surrendered to God and God pulled the house down. This was a great act of faith by this man who had his, head, had his eyes removed in God's mercy. And then killed with the Philistines, he was buried by his friends. You think about how applicable that is to our Lord and Master. So here's a man who's mocked by the crowds, verse 27. He's willing to die with sinners, verse 30. But he's united with his father, verse 31, in his death. Oh, yes, brothers and sisters and young people, this is an amazing story of the crucifixion of Christ. And for all Samson's failings, and we know what they are, he is a towering example of faith. And what he did in his death is going to stand in the record as one of the preeminent examples of the death of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. 
between those two pillars. And now it's like our eyes can see it, can't they? We can, we can hear that little echo, the one on the right hand, the other on the left. And we can, when we hear that, it's almost like we need to, to color that little phrase in and put a little picture of three crosses in the margin. Here's a cameo of the crucifixion of Christ. We're not slow to understand. We can see these things spread throughout the scriptures. The ages are framed by his son. Well, come, if you will, to 1st of Samuel in chapter 14 and to our last, if you like, more obvious example of the sacrifice and crucifixion of Christ. 1st of Samuel, chapter 14. This is the story of Jonathan defeating the Philistines. The son, the prince of the king, going up and defeating the enemy of the truth. And in 1 Samuel 14, we read in verse 4, that he decided to take his armor bearer and to go and fight the Philistines. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistines' uh, garrison, there was a sharp rock, and here's our little phrase, on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side that's worthy of a little bit of color. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other, Sinur. The forefront of the one was situate northward, again, northward over against Michmash and the other southward over against Gibeah. Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, come, let us, let us go up to the garrison of the Philistines and it may be that Yahweh will work for us for there is no restraint to Yahweh to save by many or by few. What a wonderful lesson in the battle of faith against the Philistines. We absolutely need God's help, but he won't do it without our cooperation. There's no restraint with Yahweh to work by many or by few, just not with none. We've got to be there, young people, to fight, to contribute, to participate in the battle against sin. And the armor bearer said, these are lovely words, do all that is in thine heart, turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. And Jonathan said, all right, we'll pass over, we'll make ourselves known to them. And Yahweh will deliver them into our hand. And so they went up and they fought against the Philistines. And look what it says in verse 13. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor bearer after them. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew after them. And that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men. So here's a story where there's two rocks, one on the one side, the other on the left. Jonathan is going to be our Lord Jesus Christ in the story. We are going to be his armor bearer. It's, the armor bearer is a type of ourselves. We're his servants. And we say, Jonathan, as your heart is, so is ours. We're united in this battle against sin, united in our hearts. And look what it says in verse 13. Now we see the significance of verse 13. Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet. Well, of course he did. He's climbing a hill. But can you see now why we're told upon his hands and upon his feet, because this is a picture of the crucifixion. This is between two rocks. This is a sacrifice by which his hands and his feet would be pierced in the great victory that would only ever be God's, verse 10, for Yahweh has delivered them into our hands. And look what it says in verse 15. 
after this great slaughter, there was a trembling in the host in the field and among all the people. And the garrison, the spoilers, they also trembled and the earth quaked. There was a very great trembling. What happened after the sacrifice of Christ? There was a huge earthquake in the Gospels. And here in 1st of Samuel 14, we have the watermark, the, the photograph, if you like, of the sacrifice of Christ. The one on the right hand, the other on the left. A man defeating the enemy by his hands and his feet. So isn't this marvellous, young people, as we are able to look through the scriptures and see in what might be stories that we know so well, stories that we've read perhaps dozens of times, and yet now we can read with new eyes, with enlightened perception, and see in these things a hidden message, a hidden type of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so we've, we've uh, looked at three more obvious examples of, of this in the scriptures. The battle against the Amalekites, the death of Samson, and the battle of Jonathan. Now let me take you to three maybe less obvious examples, but um, very interesting and exciting ones nonetheless. I'd like you to come to Acts in chapter 12. And Acts, Acts chapter 12 is interesting because obviously uh, Acts chapter 12 is after the resurrection of Christ. So it's not even as if these cameos of the sacrifice of Christ are limited to the Old Testament. You know, it can only be uh, in the past looking forwards to Christ. Here's a wonderful example of the sacrifice of Christ in the life of Peter after Jesus Christ has already enacted the crucifixion, which makes us think, doesn't it? Maybe there's things in our lives as well that we are enacting, which are also parables of the sacrifice of Christ, but we're completely oblivious. We think of types of Christ as only being ones that were in the Old Testament looking forwards. But here's an example in Acts chapter 12 of one that's happened after the crucifixion of Christ where it's almost like it's pointing back in type to what Christ had done. So Acts chapter 12, and um, this is the story of the imprisonment of Stephen. And Herod, the king, stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the ecclesia, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. So Peter was in prison. And prayer was made without ceasing of the ecclesia unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, verse 6, the same night... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. See if you can see uh, a cameo of the story of Christ in this story. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him. A light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Rise up quickly. The chains fell from his hands, and he said, Gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. Cast thy garment about thee and follow me. And he went out into the street and the gates opened of their own accord. And when Peter came to himself, verse 11, he said, Now I know of a surety 
that the Lord has sent his angel and delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jews. And he ran and made himself known unto the disciples. So here's a story that's going to take place. And look at the timing, verse 4. This is Easter. This is verse 3, the days of unleavened bread. This is why Passover time. And instead of uh, killing Peter right at Passover time, he's going to hold him in prison, intending after Passover to bring him forth to the people. And I wonder, brothers and sisters and young people, whether or not this is three days after Passover. And Peter is going to experience a typical death and then resurrection to life on the third day after Passover to enact the crucifixion and resurrection of his Lord. He's between two soldiers. Here's a picture of the crucifixion. And did you notice that little watermark phrase, verse 6? He's sleeping between two soldiers. There's one on the one hand and the other on the left. There's keepers guarding the prison house of death, verse 6. And in verse 7, he's going to be smitten. He smote Peter on the side. The angel came and smote Peter. Now, you know, you get the, the impression, don't you, that Peter was obviously a pretty heavy sleeper and he had to take a fair whack to wake him up. But that word smote, actually, quite interestingly, is used in chapter 7 in verse 34 of Acts to describe Moses smiting the Egyptian and killing him back in the days of the Exodus. This is, this is like a smiting unto death. In fact, in this very chapter, chapter 11 and verse 23, the angel of the Lord smote Herod with death. So when it says in verse uh, 7, that the angel smote Peter on the side. In chapter 7, in verse 34, in chapter 11, verse 23, that smiting is unto death. Here's a typical death, and then a rising up, a rise up quickly, resurrection back to life, an angel shining bright lights in the, in the prison room. This is the angel of the Lord descending upon the stone in the story of Matthew chapter 28 and the brightness of his countenance was going to blind the soldiers he was going to raise Jesus Christ from the dead and here maybe that same angel is coming to resurrect Peter in type and did you notice there's a, a reference isn't there in verses 7 and 8 to why the hands and the feet the chains fell from his hands and the angel said Bind on your sandals upon your feet. Here's a man whose hands and feet are involved in this typical crucifixion and resurrection to life, maybe on the third day after Passover. And he's going to be smitten and then rise from the dead. But in this chapter, he's going to leave Herod smitten and dead permanently in verse 23 behind. Two smitings in this chapter. But one man, Peter, is going to be raised in type and leaving behind his slain counterpart, Herod, dead behind him. And afterwards, of course, Peter is going to appear to the disciples in verse 16, just like Christ appeared to the disciples to convince himself that he was free from the tentacles 
of death, the shackles of mortality had been cast aside and he appears to the disciples just in exactly the same way. And just like Christ had said, go and show to Peter that I'm alive. Peter says, go and show these things unto James and to the brethren, verse 17. Oh yes, brothers and sisters and young people, this is a marvelous story of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, an enactment of Golgotha. And did you notice at the end of verse 17, it says, and he departed and went into another place. Do you know, those words are, are almost redundant. It's like, why are we being told this? I mean, eventually he was going to depart from the disciples and go into another place. Of course, that would be true. But why is that significant? Why are we being told that after he appears to the disciples, he departed and went into another place? Except it be that we're being asked to consider this is the story of Jesus Christ. And here, at the end of this typical death and resurrection, we now have the ascension of, G of Peter, if you like, the ascension of Christ into heaven itself. He departs into another place, verse 17, a place where the disciples could not follow him. So Acts chapter 12 is going to be a remarkable story of the work of Christ. When we seek him, brothers and sisters and young people, he is everywhere in the scriptures. Well, let me take you backwards this time. In our first three obvious examples, we came forwards through the scriptures. Let's go backwards now and into the gospels themselves and see if we can't find a picture, perhaps a more enigmatic picture of the crucifixion. One that's going to be not very obvious on the surface, but one that's in the gospels and the story of Christ himself. And I'd like you to come to Matthew and chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 and verses 16 to 28. We won't read all the verses, but let me, just, uh, let me just point out a few things for you in this story, which seems on the surface, I think you'll agree, completely unrelated to the crucifixion of Christ. So here's an example where if we look and we search with inquiring minds, we're going to see that this watermark of the sacrifice of Christ is going to be evident in many, many more places than we might have thought. Matthew chapter 8, and look what happens in this story. Verse 16, when even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with demons. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all them that were sick. So here's the story of Jesus Christ healing the sick, casting out demons. And then in verse 28, it says, And when he was come to the other side, unto the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with demons, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And Jesus Christ is going to heal those who are possessed of the demons. So here in this story, we're going to have... Uh, a tale where there are two stories where Christ casts out demons. And in between, there's the story of verses 23 to 27. Behold, a great tempest in the sea. So there's a storm in between 
two stories of healings. And this is highlighted by the phrase, the other side. So verse 18 says, Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. Verse 28, when he was come to the other side. So see how the record is trying to say there's two sides. On the one side, there's healing with demons. On the other side, there's healing with demons. And in between, there's going to be the story of the storm. And in this story, well, let's just read it. Verse 23 to 27. When he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he said unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, and the men marveled. What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So here's a picture now of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the story of the storm, flanked, if you will, by two stories of of demons being cast out, the one on the one side and the other on the other side of the lake. And look how the story of the storm speaks eloquently of the crucifixion and experiences of Christ. A great tempest in the sea. This is a huge storm. This is the the maelstrom of life. This is the great waves of sin coming against Christ. Insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. This is a typical burial under the waters. And Jesus Christ is typically dead. He's asleep. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, in the middle of a storm, being asleep like this. I mean, he must have had times, brothers and sisters and young people, where he was absolutely exhausted. You know, he'd wrung himself out. No more energy, nothing left to give to the disciples or to the multitude. Every time he healed, virtue was going out of him. And despite the storm being one of the worst in the history of the Lake of Galilee, our Lord is so exhausted. He's in the bottom of the ship, fast asleep. Literally, fast asleep. And he's going to have to be raised up by the disciples and their desire to be saved. And the disciples come unto him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we perish. This is the story of salvation. And he's raised back to life. And he rebukes the wind and the seas. Now here's a man who, in his risen state, has absolute control over the sea of nations. Here's a man who is able to bring redemption and life and a great calm from the waves of sin. So it's almost like, we've got a picture of the, res- of the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ with two stories, one on the other side, one on one side of the lake and the other on the other. Here in the story of Matthew chapter 8, kind of uh, hidden, if you like, encoded in the natural story of just another day, if you will, is an actual fact, a type, a photograph of the crucifixion. And Matthew 
under inspiration, of course, maybe he didn't even realize that he's writing these things, is going to record it in such a way that when we read that he went to depart to the other side, and when he was come to the other side, he's giving us that clue that in between is going to be a picture of Jesus Christ. Death, resurrection, and salvation. Isn't it marvelous? Isn't it marvelous that we can read the scriptures and see these things together? Because do you know what, young people? The churches have absolutely no idea what we're talking about. Absolutely no idea, no comprehension of these things. You know, I, I've read a number of books about different parts of the scriptures where you think there's an, such an obvious type of Christ that it would be mentioned. And you're reading non-Christadelphian writers, commentaries maybe, and there's an abundantly obvious type of Christ, a picture of the work of our Lord. And they are absolutely blind to these things. We need to be so thankful that our eyes are open, that we can see that Christ has framed the ages in his son. It's all about him. Now, I'd like you to come to the last of our um, less obvious examples by way of conclusion. And it's in Nehemiah and chapter 8. Nehemiah and chapter 8. I don't know about you, but I have looked at and studied Nehemiah chapter 8 before. I have read Nehemiah chapter 8 maybe dozens of times in my life. And it was only in the last year or two that I read Nehemiah chapter 8 and this story that we know so well of Ezra uh, opening the law of Moses to the people and saw in Nehemiah chapter 8 an amazing type of the death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And I want to share this with you tonight because this is just incredible how the scriptures have this whole nother layer to them. We can read it and yes, it's about Nehemiah and yes, it's about Ezra. And yes, there's wonderful lessons about the opening of the law and the way in which we need to break it small and make sense of it. And, and that we need to rejoice because this, the joy of Yahweh is our strength. But hidden behind this amazing story of reformation in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra is encoded the story of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Let me share this with you. Nehemiah chapter 8, and look what it says in verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. So here's a picture where there's a crowd of people gathered together outside a gate. Are we starting to see perhaps maybe a, a little bit of the start of the picture developing? Even in verse 1, a crowd of people gathered outside the gate. And we read in verse 2, Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. Now, it's interesting that Ezra is preeminent in this story because Ezra is not actually the high priest. We know this because when we go to chapter 13, Eliashib is the high priest at the time of Nehemiah. 
But Elisha is is conspicuously absent from this story. And Ezra, the priest, is going to enact the part of Jesus Christ. Just like when Christ came, Caiaphas might have been the high priest, but he was nowhere to be seen when the true sacrifice needed to be offered. That was going to be another priest altogether, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Ezra, the priest, is going to enact this part of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Eliashib, the natural high priest, is relegated like Caiaphas to the background. We read in verse 3, And Ezra read thereon, or therein, from the law, before the street that was before the water gate, from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. Now, isn't that interesting? Between the hours of 9 a.m. and 12 noon, Ezra the scribe is up there in front of all the people, reading and making clear the words of the law. Why? Those three hours are the three hours, the hours of the crucifixion, where Jesus Christ was visible on the cross, after which there were going to be three hours of darkness. But the very three hours where Jesus Christ was visible on the cross are the three hours that Ezra is reading from the law. And we read in verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which they had made for the purpose. Now, now we're reading with our eyes open. We can't miss this, can we, young people? We can't miss this. Look what it says in the margin. He stood upon a tower of wood. Here's a man who's lifted up on the cross, as it were, a tower of wood in front of the eyes of all the people. Here's an enactment of the crucifixion of Christ. And the tower of wood, like the cross, was made for the purpose. Now, do you know that in this story, look what it says in verse 10. Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. At the end of this wonderful story, there are lots of things that are not prepared, but there was one thing in this story, brothers and sisters and young people, that was prepared, that was made for the purpose right from the beginning of time, and that is the cross, the tower of wood upon which Ezra is going to stand. And look what it says in verse 4. This tower of wood that was made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Anaiah, and Urijah, and Hilkiah, and Maaseiah, on his right hand, and on his left, a bunch of other men. So here we have our little watermark of the crucifixion of Christ. Ezra's in the middle, and on his right hand, a group of men, and on his left hand, a group of men. It's like the two thieves, one on the one hand, and the other on the left. And he opened the book, verse 5. In the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. He is lifted up in the eyes of all the people, placarded, as Galatians chapter 3 verse 1 says, in front of all the people. And he opened it, and all the people stood up. Of course they did. They paid respect to this man who was opening for them the scriptures. He was... He was in type our Lord Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, and everything was going to be abundantly clear. He was in the sight of all the people. 
we read in verse 5. It's reminiscent, isn't it, of the words that Christ says in John chapter 3 and verse 14. In John chapter 12, verses 32 to 33, he was lifted up above all the people. If the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. And around Ezra, on the tower of wood, there's a crowd of people. Two groups of men, one on the one side, the other on the left. This is a picture of the crucifixion. And verse 6 says, He blessed Yahweh, the great God. Of course he did. He declared God to be right. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. This is reminiscent of the centurion, isn't it? In Luke chapter 23 and verse 48, when he saw Jesus Christ on the cross, surely, truly, this is the Son of God. And he bowed his head and worshipped. In verse 8, they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Do you know the crucifixion, brothers and sisters and young people, makes everything clear. And on the top of that tower of wood was a man who was making everything clear. He was making clear the word of God. He was enacting death to the flesh. Of course, everything was now abundantly clear he was giving the sense of what was truly important. Do you know in verse 8, he caused them to understand the reading. That word in the Hebrew is the word migra, and actually it just means assembly. It's the equivalent of the Greek word ecclesia. And it's used in, in Isaiah 1 and verse 13, translated assembly. So when it says he caused them to understand the reading, of course he did, because as he was reading, he was explaining and he was breaking it small and he was giving the sense. But really it's saying he caused them to understand why they were assembled together. And isn't that true of the crucifixion? We come week by week, don't we? We gather ourselves together. When we are gathered together, we do this in remembrance of him to celebrate the death of Jesus Christ. Why do we gather ourselves together? Why are we assembled? Because we're remembering the death and the crucifixion of Christ. That's exactly what Ezra was enacting on this tower of wood, on this momentous day. And verse 9 says, And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto the people, this day is holy unto Yahweh your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. Don't be sorry. This is the great, the great victory which God has brought. This is something to be, to be absolutely excited and elated about. This is the strength of Yahweh that can give us joy. So here we have a picture of a king, Nehemiah, and a priest, Ezra, who declare why a holy day to eat and to drink and to share Yahweh's joy as their strength. This is like a memorial feast, portions sent to those who weren't able to be present, eating and drinking in remembrance of 
the wonderful things that had happened on this day. Oh, yes, brothers and sisters and young people, there's a marvelous type of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ hidden here in Nehemiah chapter 8. And I think to myself, how could I have read this chapter so many times and never have seen that there, just behind the story, is the watermark of the crucifixion of Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing when we can see these things, when we seek to see Jesus Christ, we find him, brothers and sisters, and young people everywhere. Now, I'd like us to just think about one thing in conclusion. And that is this. What's the lesson for us? Because it's marvelous to see these things and to, to be able to look in the scriptures and see the way in which Christ is hidden, encoded in the things of the Old and the New Testament, and to see those watermarks of, of Christ where we're told the one on the one side, the other on the left, always typical of the thieves. But what does it mean for us when we see these things? Why has our Heavenly Father seen fit to encode this picture of Golgotha, the sacrifice of Christ, throughout the scriptures. And surely the lesson for us, for our lives, must be this. That if everywhere we look, we see the story of Christ, and the watermark, the clue, that gives us the hint that it's a picture of Christ, is that there are thieves on either side, the moral lesson for us is that Jesus Christ is always young people to be found in the middle. And so it must be for ourselves. It's all very fine to see types of Jesus Christ, to color them in, to be amazed. It's a wonderful thing. It's how we grow in our spiritual lives of maturity and the truth. We're amazed by the way in which our Heavenly Father has encoded these things, framed the ages by his Son. But morally, what does it mean for us? Christ has to be at the center. Christ has to be put at the center of our lives. We've got to make that decision. When we see him everywhere at the center, to put him at the center ourselves, not to put him on the periphery, not to push Christ to the edges to make him one of the thieves, but to see in this cameo, this photograph, a lesson for us, for our lives, we've got to put him there. Our lives are like the lives of the thieves. That's who we identify with. We are the thieves, the faithful thief, redeemed by the sacrifice of our Lord and Master. But what we need to do, young people, is make sure that we are putting Jesus Christ at the center of everything. Because that's where the scriptures put him. Everywhere we look, he's at the center. I'd like you to come to Luke chapter 10 by way of conclusion. In our lives, we lead busy lives, full lives, work, home, ecclesia. The lesson for us is we need to put Christ at the center. Look what we read in Luke chapter 10 and verse Verse 23. And he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed 
Here's a beatitude. Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you, young people, that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them. And to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. We are so privileged to know and understand the wonderful and marvellous redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Prophets and kings and rulers, emperors have maybe wished to see these things down the ages of time, and these things have been revealed to us. How thankful and grateful we ought to be. And our response is that we know, young people, that the lesson is Christ has to be at the centre of everything that we do. Because everywhere we look through the scriptures, that's where he is. Let's make a determination in our lives to not push him to the outside, but to put him at the middle. To elevate, to lift up above all the sight of the people, the, the character and the wonderfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do, our Heavenly Father will bless us because our eyes have seen, and our ears have truly heard wonderful things. I love you all. Let's pray earnestly for the return of our Lord and Master, that we can be united in the kingdom, that we can sit at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ with those disciples that were on the road to Emmaus and have our minds open from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and all the scriptures, the things concerning him. And we'll realize, I think, young people, we're just scratching the surface as to what is hidden in this book about the work of our Lord and our master. If we seek, truly, we will find him. Mm -hmm.